ready to enter the promised land, and he knows he doesn't get to go in. So kind of as his last will and testament, as his last farewell address, he gives a series of sermons in which he lets the people of Israel know certain things. He's like, guys, you need to understand this. As you get ready to go into the promised land, you must know certain things. And that is the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I, when, when I was asked what the uh, sermon was going to be about, I said uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 15. That's kind of the, the primary text that we're going to look at. But there's so much in the book of Deuteronomy that I can't limit myself just to that. And, and because I only get one sermon, we're going to actually back out and we're going to take an overview of Deuteronomy. And we're going to try and get like a 30,000 foot view as we fly by. Now, I know that it's going to be really, really fast. Um, and apparently, Jim wants to change from an hour to 30 minutes. Not going to happen. I'm sorry. <clears throat> it's going to be hard enough to fit this into 60 minutes, 75, something like that. So... I, I kind of figured, you know, nobody has the excuse, well, I got to go home to, to eat, so we've got plenty. No, we'll, we'll try and keep it reasonable, but uh, we're going we're gonna to take like that. Obviously, we're not the children of Israel. We're, we're a local assembly called together but we, we are followers of Christ. We follow God. We have, we have claimed his name, and we want to live for him. So there's obviously some differences, but there's also a lot of things that we can draw out from this and understand. And really, if you get nothing else from this, I'm, I'm going to front load it, let you guys know right up front, the thing that I want you to understand, the thing that I want you to get, is to hear the word of God and do the word of God so that you can prosper in the promises of God. Now, there's a whole lot in that. I understand. We're going to unpack it. We're going to take a look at that. But there are some key ideas that Moses says of here and certain actions to do so that they can prosper in the promises of God. Okay? I'm going to start off. We're going to read uh, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 15, and I'll be referencing back to that several times. But then we're going to turn from that to the start of Deuteronomy chapter 1, and we'll, like I said, take that 30,000-foot view and go through. So starting off in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we open your word, as we study it, Lord, I pray that you would get me out of your way so that your word shines forth. Lord, help us, each of us, to, to glean from it, to understand that you have given us certain commands, certain things that you expect of us, so that we can live in fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that as we spend this time, that you would challenge us, that you would change us, and make us into what you want us to be. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> so, obviously there's a lot going on in that section. 
And uh, I would love to just dig in and, and focus in on that. I would encourage you, maybe this afternoon or sometime this week, spend some time rereading through that section. Read through the first several chapters of Deuteronomy and just bear in mind that idea that Moses, he's getting ready to pass the baton to Joshua. And the children of Israel are getting ready to, to receive the promises that God had for them. And that's big and exciting and all kinds of craziness is going on. And so what is it that Moses wants them to know? But as we, as we start in on this, we do need to lay a little bit of, bit of groundwork. Book of Deuteronomy, um, just from the title, it means the second law. So in essence, Moses is retelling the law. Now, if you compare this with Leviticus and Numbers um, and Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, then you'll find that there's a lot of similarities and there's a few things that are, are a little bit different, a little bit distinct. Um, it's not that Moses is giving new laws, it's that he's reiterating and he's giving a commentary to help the people understand. You'll recall that uh, Israel, the, the children of God, had spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt, right? And God had promised them that he would bring them out of slavery and that he would bring them to the promised land, to an area flowing with milk and honey, a place that he wanted them to build a nation for him. And he had certain things that he wanted them to do there, but he also had certain rules and laws of how they were to act once they got there. Those were both governmental and religious rules and laws, and there's a whole bunch of them. We're not going to dig into all of those, though it's a great study. But here in Deuteronomy, Moses is summarizing those, and he's kind of hitting the highlights, and he's trying to make sure that this new generation that's getting ready to go into the promised land is ready, that they know what they need, and that they are prepared. And so he starts off in verse 1 of chapter 1. These are the words that Moses spake to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. And then it gives specificity of where exactly it is. I'll admit I struggled to pronounce these correctly, so I'm just going to skip them. You can read them and try and pronounce them if you want to. But it tells exactly where they're at. It's 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now, we're going to pause there. Uh, I find that little phrase incredibly fascinating. Now, I already told you, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, right? But Moses is saying it's 11 days. So they get out of Egypt, and what took them so long? Why did it take them 40 years to get from leaving slavery to the promised land? It's only 11 days' journey. It shouldn't take that long. Well, he goes on to explain, in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that God had given him in the commandments. I think that it's important because he's telling this second generation why it took 40 years. See, the children of Israel, they come out of slavery, right? A miraculous way. God does all kinds of cool stuff to get them out of slavery and that first generation sees all of that. And then they get scared. And they get worried. And they don't follow through. And that's what Moses is about to talk, to, talk about here in chapter 1. You, you fast forward to uh, verse 20 and 21. And it says, we get to this land. You've come... Um, sorry, I said 20. Verse 22. Then all of you came near and said, Let us send men before us that they may ex explore the land and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up so that they would be able to take the land. So they go in, and you, you'll recall they send 12 spies in, right? Those 12 spies, they go in, they look at it, and it's like, Hey, this is a great, wonderful, beautiful place, but there's giants, and we can't fight giants. Well, they're right. There's no way that they could take on giants, but... Uh, ten of them are like, there's no way, we've got to turn back. Two of them said, let's go, let's take them. So we get to verse 26, yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us a land of the Amorites to destroy us. Now, they had just seen... God 
do 10 plagues that completely showed the Egyptians that their gods were nothing. If you look through those plagues, each one of them focused on gods that the Egyptians worshipped, and it was God's way of saying, yeah, you, you guys are nothing. I, can, I am the best. I'm the greatest. There is no comparison. And so these Israelites then leave Egypt, and they get to the Red Sea, and there's no way of escape. They're literally between an army and an uh, ocean, and there's no way out except God parts the Red Sea and says, hey, walk right across, and God defeats the army of the Egyptians, the biggest, best, strongest army that there was in the world at the time, basically. That'd be like if the U.S. military was just completely wiped out in a single shot. That's, that's what God did for the Israelites, and they saw it, and they knew it, but they rebelled. They said, no, no, we don't trust him. Even though we've seen everything that's happened, we don't trust him. And so they reject, and they decide not to go in. But then, shortly after that, in verse 32, um, it says, you know, yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went before you in the way to seek you out of place. And they rejected it, and not one of the men, uh, and, and so as a result, in verse 34, the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephthah. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. See, only Caleb and Joshua were willing to trust God and trust his word that he said, hey, I know it's scary, I know it's difficult, I know it's challenging, but I will take you through it. Everybody else rejected him and said, no, no, we're scared. Uh, in fact, they make the claim that God is going to kill off all of their children. That comes up here in just a couple of verses. And so they're, they're using the excuse, well, it's, it's for the kids. We, we don't want them to get hurt. Therefore, we're, we're not going to go in. And God says, okay, you're not going in. Instead, you will wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And that's exactly what they did. See, when God makes a promise, he fulfills his promise. Well, the, the children of Israel, they heard that, and then they're like, oh, wait, no, 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 we didn't mean it. We're going to go in. We'll, we'll go. And so they, they all run. You, go ahead and read it. It's, it's right there in the last part of that chapter. They're like, no, we're good to go. And they strap on their swords, and they grab their armor, and they're getting ready to go. And God's like, no, no. I told you to go, and you didn't. One, one of the principles I think that, that Moses is trying to teach them, and I think that we need to learn as well, is that late obedience or partial obedience is still disobedience. And there are consequences for that. They used excuses, they made up reasons, and they rejected what God had promised them. And as a result, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation died. See, they used the excuse that it was their kids. They were trying to take care of the kids, but it was the children that God then said, no, I'm going to preserve these kids through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And you'll recall the, the story as they go through that, their shoes don't wear out, manna comes from heaven, God just pours out on them, takes perfect care of them, and after 40 years, after that first generation all dies off, God says, all right, children of the first generation, this is the second generation, you are going in. I have promised it to you. I will fulfill that promise. I will take care of you. And so Moses is reminding them of this history. It's, it's really easy to ignore history and to think that we, we are the only ones that have ever gone through certain things. Moses is saying to them, no, no, no. You guys need to understand what has come before. God has done these awesome, amazing, powerful things, and he has brought his people to this place. And if they reject him, if they ignore him and, and want to go their own way, he'll let them. But if they will follow him and serve him, he will fulfill his promises and he will do these great things. And now, with this second generation, it is time for you to go in to the promised land and to receive 
the blessings that God has guaranteed to the children of Israel. We get then to chapter 2. Like I said, we're, we're going to move fast. We're going to try and, and hit quite a bit. So I know that I'm missing a lot. I know that I'm skipping over a lot. But I, I really want to get this arch, the, the idea, the overall story of what's happening and these primary lessons that Moses is trying to get. We get into chapter 2, and we have what I think is, is incredibly fascinating today to look at. If you've ever talked to people about the Old Testament and about this idea of God bringing his children into the promised land, one of the big excuses that people have for not wanting to trust God is that he's mean and evil and vindictive and tells them to just wipe everybody out. And well, what, what about all the, the kids that they killed and the innocents, the, the women and children and things like that? And I think God answers that here in chapter 2. See, as they're getting ready, he, uh, Moses is still telling the story of what's going on, and he, he says, we turned and we went this way and we went that way and we went to these places. Um, but then we get down into verse 4, command the people. So God tells Moses, command the people, you're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. And he, he goes on and says, Esau. Now, you remember some of the stories of, of Esau and some of the bad things that happen. Esau is to be protected because I'm not giving you their land. Continue on, and it, it gets to uh, verse 9. The Lord said to me, do not harass Moab. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know Moab is not good people. They're not nice. And yet, God says, no, I'm protecting them as well. You're not allowed to, to harass them or cause them problems or do mean things to them. It goes on in, uh, in verse 19, when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon. Now, these are different groups of people in that area that God's saying, no, I'm not going to allow you to destroy them, to attack them, to deal with them, anything like that. However, we also have in uh, Genesis chapter 15, hold, hold your place here in Deuteronomy, we're going to jump back and just take a look at Genesis 15. We have a little bit of a, an understanding of what's going on and of why it is. Because I, I think it's reasonable when we approach Scripture and we have questions and we're like, well, well, how can a just God, how can a, a loving God do these things? That's a fair, reasonable question. Well, he answers that back in Genesis 15 when he makes this promise in the first place that he's going to give the children of Israel this promised land and all of this, these wonderful things. He gives the reasoning. He gives the um, explanation of that. Starting off in verse 13, it says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain... Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not there and will be servants there. That's their time of slavery in Egypt, right? They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and be buried in a good old age. They will come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. See, God is a just God. And he wants his people to understand that he is just. Yes, there are these nations, Moab, um, and I can't remember all of them, Moab, Ammon, and Esau, the sons of Esau. They're not good people. And yet God is saying, I, I have plans for them. I'm going to protect them. But there's also these Amorites, and they are wicked and they're evil. But their time has not yet come. This is back in Genesis their time's not ready because their wickedness is not complete. See, God is a, a very patient God. And he, he will be just. He will fulfill his promises. But he's also will, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We find that in the New Testament. And so as, as Moses is going through and telling them all of these things, he's helping them understand a little bit about who God is as well. Because God will fight the battles for them, but he also is taking care of not just the Israelites, 
but others as well. And he wants to protect them and show them that his justice is what is at work right here. So the Ammonites and various others in the land of Canaan have been allowed to have opportunities. They could have turned back to God in various ways, and yet instead they allowed their wickedness, their evil, to grow and grow and grow and to become complete before God sent his chosen people into that land to take it over and to live there. So when the question comes up, you know, well, what about all these things that happen, all these battles where God says, just go in and wipe them out? God is just in that because their wickedness had reached the level at which he says, okay, it's time for judgment. I'm going to wipe them out. But he doesn't just do that willy-nilly on everybody, even though they deserved it. We're going to find out in, in other passages at other times that Moab is not a nice people, and they deserve punishment as well. But God is merciful and long-suffering and allows them opportunities to come back to him. And so, as, as the children of Israel are getting through all of this, Moses reminds them, you're not supposed to take out or fight against or harass these different people. And so as they go through their wanderings, um, in chapters 2 and 3, we hear of kingdoms and people that God protects and says, no, don't attack them, don't fight them, don't cause problems with them. And then others that he says, okay, I will fight your battle. And we're not going to read through all of chapter 2 or all of chapter 3, but the rest of those are example after example after example of how God leads and guides and protects and takes care of his people so that they are ready to enter the land, that they are, um, their battles are fought for them. They don't have to, to deal with it. They get all the way to the edge of the land. They're ready to go in, and we get down to chapter 4. So I, I think that chapters 1 through 3 are kind of an introduction in which Moses is setting the stage, and he's reminding them of who God is and what God has done. Like, hey, we came out of Egypt. We were slaves back there, but God brought us out, and God has taken care of us every step of the way. Now, this shouldn't have taken very long because it's only 11 days to get here, but because your fathers, your parents, didn't follow God, they didn't trust him, they weren't willing to rely on him, we had to wander around and around. And during that wandering, God took care of us. He provided for us. He protected us. He even set aside certain nations and areas for us not to deal with because he has plans for them at other times in other ways. But there are certain nations that he has said, wipe them out entirely because justice needs to be fulfilled and their time has come. Now, We're about ready to go into the promised land. Chapter 4. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Moses spends here the next, um, really all the way until pretty close to the end of the book, about 20 chapters, giving them laws and rules and instructions. And I know, I know it's hard to hear lots of rules. I don't know about most of you. I know my kids and myself as well. Uh, we don't like to be told what to do. Does, does anybody really like being told you're not allowed to, you must? And Okay, a couple of you maybe. Um, structure is nice. I, I won't deny that. But sometimes I just want to do my own thing. I want to do my thing my way. But Moses has set this up so that they understand who God is and what God has done so far and that God is a just God and that God is a merciful God and that God has protected them and has brought them to this point. Therefore, because of that, he says, I want you to hear, and and this is one of those words that actually it's going to come up more than 80 times in the book of Deuteronomy. So when a, when a word is repeated that many times, it probably means we might want to look into it, figure out what, it's, what it means, what's going on. The word, the Hebrew word is Shema, uh, which is kind of a famous one. If you've, if you've studied anything about Israelites, we're going to get to, actually what I first read was, hear, O Israel, that's called the Shema, and it means hear or listen. But not just let it go in one ear and out the other. The idea is pay attention to or know this for a certainty. Hear, listen, and obey. 
like I said, over 18 times, or AD, 80 times, it comes up in Deuteronomy. And uh, so he starts off with this idea of listen, pay attention. All right, I've set the background, I've given you an introduction, you understand where you came from and what's going on and why it's you and not your parents. You, you got that, but listen up. I need you to pay attention to this information because it is vital for you as the children of Israel to go into the promised land. You need to know this. Listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them. Why? That you may live and go in and take possession of the land. During this, throughout, throughout this chapter, he's going to give kind of some of the basics. But he's going to start off with something in verse 7 that I think is, is incredibly important for the children of Israel to know and also incredibly important for us as believers today to understand. See, I already mentioned that they were brought out of the, the land of Egypt where they worshipped all kinds of different gods. We call that polytheism, where there's, there's a god of the river and there's a god of the desert. There's a god of the sun and there's a god of the moon. There's a god of the land and the sky and everything else. All kinds of different gods. And in this chapter, Moses says, they worship all these gods, but you worship something else. You worship something that is special and unique. Starting off in verse 7, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all the law that I set before you today? See, he's, he's drawing a distinction here with two very important items that he wants them to understand. First and foremost, they don't serve this, this God that's way out there that has no interest in them because they've already seen that God cared for them and brought them out of Egypt, brought them out of slavery, and walked with them day by day, hour by hour, through all of that. You'll recall as they're leaving Egypt and they're going through the the wanderings in the wilderness, they had a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire to guide them, right? Moses is saying there's no other nation, there's no other people that has a God that is near to them. We still have a God that is near to us. We, We affirmed that just minutes ago as we spent time in prayer, right? I mean, why, why would we pray if not because we believe and we understand that God hears us and answers us and interacts with us, right? So Moses is reminding them, our God is something special, unique, different than, than all of these others that you've heard of. And because of that, you need to serve him. You need to follow him. You need to obey him. But he also makes another point there in uh, verse 8 What nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous? Most of you already agreed with me that you don't really like being told what to do. I I know I never liked being told no as a kid. I like being able to do what I want. And yet, Moses is saying, hey, these rules, these instructions, these guidelines that we're about to get into, they are good. They are righteous. See, they're not there to, to ruin our time and to make us have a terrible life and to be you know, hard and difficult and all of that. We have those rules so that it can be good and righteous, so that we can live well, so that it can be just. I mean, we're, we're about to get into the Ten Commandments. I'll, I'll tell you, that's where we're going in chapter 5. When we start getting into those, how many of you want to be murdered? Anybody? You think that'd be... No. So we don't want it to happen to us, so we don't do it to others, right? Makes sense. God is, is special and unique, and he's, he's one of a kind. So if we, if we try and, and worship him, but worship somebody else as well, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? So, so what Moses is saying is all of these rules, all of these laws, they're not there to, to give you a hard time. They're there because they make sense. They're reasonable. They're just. And he's, he's reminding them there's no other nation that has such righteous laws. This, this fact is actually brought out not only in Scripture, but also history confirms the uniqueness of the Israelite laws. Um, they are recognized as some of the earliest adopters of monotheism, or the idea of worshiping one God and not many and all kinds of different gods. 
But when they look through the laws and start just comparing them with other types of laws that were at work in that time frame, um, one of the big questions, one of the uh, honestly issues that comes up with the law is, well, what about slavery? Isn't slavery bad? Why, why would we allow slavery? But you start digging into what the Old Testament says, and the way that, that slaves were given rights was completely different than anywhere else in the entire world at that time. Slaves were treated as people. Now, yes, they were in indentured servants type of an idea. They didn't have the same freedoms. But if you were mean to them, bad things happened to you. If you harmed them, bad things happened to you. They were given personhood, unlike anywhere else in the entire world. Um, women were actually given personhood under Israelite law. Whereas everywhere else in the world, women were, they, they were just an object, didn't matter, you know, you owned them, it, whatever. But in Israel, they were given certain rights and privileges and expectations that nowhere else had. And I know, I'm, I'm getting into the, the specific laws. There's lots of them. The point, the point is that the laws that God gave through Moses to the children of Israel were righteous. They were good. They were completely different than anything else that the world had because their God was completely different than any other God ever recognized or worshipped or, or made up. And because of that, as a result of that, Moses gets down to verse 9 and says, Do not forget. Verse 9, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and, you depart from their, and they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make the known to your children and your children's children how, how on the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near to the mount and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire from the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of, of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time, teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. These rules, these laws, these instructions that God was giving to them, God gave himself directly to them. This God, this unique God, not through Moses, but directly to them so that they would know what he wanted of them, what he expected of them as they went into the promised land. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, it says in verse 15. And then the primary warning that he gives through the rest of chapter 4 is don't start following other gods. I mean, that, that's really the summary of it. That's what it comes down to. Don't follow other gods. Because God is unique, because he is near to you, and because he is righteous and gives you righteous, good laws, don't start following someone else. You know, we run into the same thing. Even, even today, there are rules, there are instructions or guidelines that we as believers are supposed to follow, Right? And a lot of times the world around us, they're like, oh, well, you, you have all these thou shalts and thou shalts nots, and you have to do this, and you're not allowed to do that, and all the fun stuff we get to do, but you, you followers of Jesus, you don't get to do anything fun. That's not true. It's not accurate. See, the rules that we have are there for our good. They are there to protect us and to take care of us. And because of who God is, we have those rules, not just to ruin our day and to make it hard for us, but so that we can live in unity and fellowship with him. And we're, we're about to get into what those are. But I started off with that idea, hear and do so that you can prosper in the promises of God. And that's what Moses is setting up right here. I don't, I don't want you to lose sight of that. I know we're, we're flying by lots of chapters and we're digging in on certain items, but I don't want you to lose, fact, or lose track of the idea that Moses is really emphasizing to them. I want you to hear the rules and the instructions that God has so that you can do them, not to be oppressive, not to ruin your day, not to have a bad time, but so that you can prosper 
in the promises that God has for you. So we get to chapter 5. Actually, hang on, before we get there, let's, let's touch one more thing in chapter 4, verses 33 through 39. Um, remind them or express to them, nope, I turned too many pages, sorry. 33 through 39 in chapter 4 reminds them of who God is, how unique He is, um, what God has done for them in Egypt, and to bring them out. No one else has a God like ours, and therefore we get to verse 40. Because God is unique, because He is God alone, because there's no one that compares to Him, therefore, verse 40, you shall keep His statutes and His commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you, with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all of time. Because of who God is, Therefore, Moses says to obey him, to follow him. Now, when we study and we learn and we understand who God is, that he's the creator of all things, we believe that God created all things literally in about six days, roughly 4,000 4 to 6,000 years ago, right? So because God made all things, he's in charge of all things. He has the authority to give us those rules and those guidelines. But we've been looking at, some of these things that Moses is emphasizing, because God is near, he hears them, he understands them, he knows what's going on, his rules and his decrees are for their good, they're beneficial, they're positive. Because of all of that, because of who God is, we need to keep his statutes and his commands. But his commands are not that hard, they're not that grievous, they're not that difficult. And that's what he gets into in chapter 5. Moses summoned all Israel to him and said to them, Hear, O Israel, there it is again, Shema, listen up, pay attention, hear and obey these rules. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. You shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God has made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. Moses is making a very important statement here because that last generation, God had given the Ten Commandments to. He appeared on Mount Sinai. He gave them the the law. He gave them the commandments, and he made a covenant with them, and they immediately broke it. You you probably remember the story, right? Moses goes up. He gets the the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone, comes back down, and he starts hearing something. He's like, "What, what is going on? Something sounds odd. And he gets down, and there's this great big party going on, And during that party, they had made a golden image, and they were all bowing down and worshiping it, right? A lot happens in connection with that, but the summary is God had just made a covenant with them, and they broke it. Immediately, they broke it. And Moses here is saying, hey, God's made this covenant, not with them. This is not them. This is not about them. This is about you. God has made this covenant with you. He's made certain promises to you, and he expects certain things from you. Verse 4, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. That's one of those phrases, I don't, I don't have time to go through and track it throughout the Old Testament, but it comes up so many times, and it's, it's this awesome, amazing concept that we, we ought to be aware of, that God speaks face to face. See, God wants a relationship with people. God always has. There's, there's this idea that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are so different, and, but they're not. See, God wants an individual relationship with each member of Israel, and therefore he speaks to them face to face. How, how do you develop a friendship? How do you develop a relationship? We talk to people, right? I mean, nowadays we do have the, the phones, the technology, and, and whatnot, but if you've ever tried to build a friendship with, over the phone, it's doable, but it's not the same as sitting down with somebody. I already mentioned thank you so much to those of you who invited us over for meals because we got to see you face to face, to talk to you, to get to know you. Well, that's what God's done with them. And the God of the Old Testament who did that with Israel is the same God of the New Testament who wants to do that with each of us. Now, obviously, I don't know where everybody is. 
Um, the ones that I've talked to, I've, I've heard a lot of testimonies. I've heard a lot of the stories of what God has done in your life. And I get the impression that many, I, I would guess most here, already have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They've sat down and met him face to face. They've accepted him as their savior. I'm also going to guess that there's probably some in here that haven't. I understand that. The God of the Old Testament who wanted that relationship, that face-to-face relationship with the children of Israel, is the same God today that wants a direct relationship with each one of us. He loves us. He loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever, that means anybody, whosoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's an amazing God that we serve, that he wants each of us to know him personally, face to face, in a way that there is no other religion around the world in all time that has a God like the God that we serve. The Lord spoke to you face to face, out of the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, and it goes on to talk about the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm going to guess that some of you could probably quote several of them, I will admit, I can't quote them all. I, I know I memorized them when I was a kid in Sunday school, and that is a great thing to do. Um, I recommend it. But I also know that now when I'm in front of people and trying to talk, I could not quote them all straight through, and I would probably even struggle if I sat down and, and tried to. So we're going to take a look at them just straight out of the text. Um, it starts off in verse 6. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Let's recognize that that's, that's the capstone. That's the starter for all of it. That They need to recognize God has saved them, pulled them out of Egypt. And that, that is a, a key principle here. They're not obeying these to gain their freedom from Egypt. We, we talk about works and, and things that we do today. We don't do good things. We don't obey God. We don't follow the rules to gain salvation. They didn't follow these rules to get out of Egypt. They followed these rules because God had brought them out of Egypt. So I am the Lord your God who has already in the past brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Because of that, you shall have no other gods before me. Now think about that just for a moment. It, it makes perfect sense, right? The God who's powerful enough to defeat all the others and to prove that they, they're not even gods, they don't really even count, that God is the only one that's worthy of being served. Therefore, common sense, don't serve anybody else. Just serve him. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall, make no, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. And it goes on and explains basically anything of any kind. Don't try and create something to worship because it doesn't capture it. And that, that was part of the problem when they, when they made the golden calf and they tried to worship it. It, it's an incomplete representation. There, there is nothing that can completely and truly represent who God is that, that we could possibly make, whether of gold or of silver. I mean, those, those are valuable things, but God is so much more valuable. There's, there's precious metals and stones that are strong and sturdy. Our God is stronger and sturdier than anything that we could make. He's more beautiful than anything that we could design. And therefore, God says, don't, don't even try don't make something, don't bow down to them, don't follow them, don't have anybody else try to do those things either. We get down to verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, I want to I want to pause on this one because when I was a kid, when I, I, I was blessed to have grown up in a Christian home. I'm so thankful that my parents loved Jesus and taught me to love him as well. But I was always taught that this idea is, is don't cuss, right? Don't say bad words. Don't, don't use God's name in a, in a bad way. And though that's true, that's carried in this, that, that is part of it. The idea here is that as you go through life, don't carry or take the name of God in an unworthy or improper way. How many of you here, and this is a, a given response moment, how many of you here would claim to be Christians? That means followers of Christ. Hopefully, I'm, I'm not going to count, I'm not going to point anybody out, but hopefully everybody raises your hand. All right? If you claim to be a Christian, you are carrying on yourself the name of Christ. 
So if you go out here and start to speeding, I know our, our police officer and residents may be a little bit tired and off-duty, but if, if you do that and somebody sees you peeling out from the church parking lot, does that represent Christ well or poorly? The point that they're saying is, don't misrepresent who God is. Now, obviously, the things that we say can misrepresent God. And so if we are using God's name improperly, that's misrepresenting God. But more than that, he's saying, when you go through life, don't carry or bear the name of God in an improper and poor way. So practical application for us, if you claim to be a Christian, act like one and don't give Christ a bad name in whatever form that might take. Okay, that's, that's my little side note. Let's go back in. Uh, number 12, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. And then he goes on and explains that the reason, the basis for that one is God made everything in six days and he rested on the seventh day and he set that apart as a special, unique day. Now, obviously, these are the rules and the, the commandments. The Ten Commandments are from the Old Testament. We don't have the Sabbath day. We don't practice that. But we do recognize... Typically, Sunday is a special day, a unique day, and we set it apart so that we can gather together and study God's Word. And I would encourage you, make it a point to have a special day in which you honor who God is and you remember what He has done. Because He created us in six days, therefore, He rested on the seventh. In the same way, we work six days and we rest on the seventh. Now, that take, obviously, it takes different forms. We have... We have uh, people who have to work particular days. I get that. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that we have to be legalistic about this or anything, but definitely take time to honor God and to, to recognize that He is holy and that He wants us to focus on Him and give dedicated time towards that. Verse 16, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, that it may go well with you. Now, we're, we're not going to take the time to skip forward to the New Testament, but this one is repeated. And it's, it's reminded of us that this is the first of the commands with a promise, that it may go well with you. But I want you to notice what it says. It says, honor your father and your mother. Now, in the New Testament, we also see the command to obey your parents. Children, obey your parents, right? Now, I've heard a lot of people who get these two conflated, and they, they are like, oh, well, I have to obey always, even when they tell me to do wrong. Well, no, no, no. We're, we're talking two different things, and we're also talking two different age groups. It says, children, obey your parents. Now, we can, we can dig in, and I'm not going to take the time, but that idea of children is basically kids, when you are under the authority of your parents, you have a responsibility to obey. Even these little bitty ones who barely get the yes and no and the, the don't touch the hot stove, they have a responsibility to obey their parents. But you'll notice that the promise is because it is for good things, right? That it may go well with you, that it will be prosperous for you. So there's the obey, but then this one isn't obey, and it's not children. This is a flat out to everybody, la-di-da-di everybody, I like to say, obey, or sorry, honor or give reverence, give respect to your parents. So, those of you who are older and you have parents that were not good, how can you honor them? Even though they may not be trustworthy and honorable in and of themselves, I like the example. I like, I like reading like old westerns, um, some of those historical type things. There's an example of um, where, where people are told to have a good name, right? And that you, if, if I'm, my name, my last name is Jack, right? So when I was growing up, everybody knew who Phil Jack, my dad, was. And I carry that name, and I, if I grow up, and everybody's like, oh, that, that Jack boy, he's, uh, he's not a good kid. He causes all kinds of, am I, am I honoring or bringing honor to my parents? No, no. But if I, if I grow up, and I'm a, a decent citizen, and don't cause problems, is that bringing honor or respect or reverence to my parents? 
Well, yeah, that's, that's the idea here, is that no matter where you are, how old you are, anything like that, that you should honor your father and mother. And as a result, good things happen. Now, it's, it's really easy, and I, I started off by, by saying the main point, the big idea that I want everybody to get, by now I, I think you hopefully have it, is to hear. You, you can respond if you want to. You can say it with me or not. It's up to you. But to hear and to do so that you can prosper in the promises of God. Now, we already talked a little bit about how that they receive these commands and they're to do these not in order to get freedom from slavery, but because God has already pulled them out of slavery. We don't do good works. We don't obey God's commands in order to gain God's favor. We can't. Paul makes that very clear. Our good deeds are like filthy rags. They're worthless. And yet, when we have that relationship with God, when we understand who He is and what He expects of us, we do these things so that we can prosper in His promises. Now, obviously, there's this idea out in the world around us called the prosperity gospel. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about health and wealth and that, you know, if you just give your church so much money, then God's going to pour out these blessings on you and make you wealthy and let you drive a Bentley and have a bajillion dollar house and do all that. No, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what this is talking about. Go back and read it. Take a look at what it says that it may go, uh, honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. They don't honor their parents to get the land, but so that as they live, the blessings of God, will, it will be well with them. The, we've only looked at a few of these, but just think about if we go out and we live a life that brings honor to our parents, that brings honor to the name of Christ, and we stay focused on who God is, is life better or worse because of that? I would, I would tend to argue that it is better. We get along better with our neighbors when we stop and think, you know, God, would you want me to say all those mean things that I want to say about them and their dog that just came over to my yard and tore stuff up? No, no. You wouldn't be honored. You wouldn't be glorified. So I'm going to be nice to my neighbor. That makes for a better life, right? I mean, just, just think practically. I'm, I'm sure that each of you can think of different examples and different ways where you're like, okay, there's all these rules in Christianity, and yet most of them, not all of them, but most of them make for a better life when we follow them, when we trust who God is and just live for Him. That's not a, not, not a hard and fast, oh, if I do this, then, then all of this is automatically going to be great. But in general, that's the principle. That's the idea. Okay, let's, let's go in. So those, are, those that we've already covered are kind of more thought-provoking, a lot more difficult to, to nail down. Let's get into some just simple, basic, practical ones. Thou shalt not steal. How many of you want somebody to take your stuff? Okay, me neither. So, so let me ask you. Is life better? Does, do things work out better if you have your stuff and, and everybody else keeps their hands off of your stuff? And if you keep your hands off of their stuff, life works out, right? Now, we could make the, you know, my, my daughter has given me the thumbs up. She doesn't want her siblings taking her toys, right? As adults, the same remains true. Now, I, I don't preach politics. I don't get into a whole lot of those, but we could make that same argument. Just everybody around us, whether it's the government or other people or anything, we want them to leave our stuff alone. What's the next one? Well, I, I actually skipped one. I got them out of order. I'm sorry. I told you I couldn't remember them all straight through. I skipped one, two. Next one's thou shalt not murder. We've already talked about it. nobody wants to be just murdered, right? Now, um, if, if we were to slow down and really dig in, we would look at this one and, and recognize that there's a difference between you're not allowed to ever kill anybody and you're not allowed to have premeditated murder. Those are two different ideas. Self-defense is allowed. In fact, other places in Scripture encourage and even, I could argue, require it at certain times. Um, defense is, is different than murder, okay? But thou shalt not murder. So if we don't go around murdering people, does that make for a better society, for a better living, for a better... Yeah, definitely. Makes sense. Thou shalt not commit adultery. 
I'm not going to dig into that one a whole lot, because if you were here last week, you know that Pastor Jack had a really good sermon about that idea. You'll notice that when Christ teaches through these, and we've still got a few more to go to, and we'll, we'll get to them in a minute, but when Christ teaches through these, he, he raises the bar on us a little bit, right? You do, you do remember that, right? When we talk about thou shalt not murder, the idea that Christ says is, if you even think mean, evil, hateful things of other people, that's, you've broken God's command. You failed. Thou shalt not commit adultery. If you even think improperly about someone else, you've committed adultery in your heart. I'm going to contest that Jesus was just keeping it short, but what about stealing? If you want something that's not yours to the point of like, oh, I could just nab that and keep it from it. Probably the same idea is going on. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness uh, against all of these things. You shall not covet or desire your neighbor's house, field, etc., etc. Um, all of these, the Ten Commandments, they're well known, right? We, we've spent just a little bit of time digging into them. You've probably already heard most of them. You're familiar with these. God gave them for a reason so that as the people of Israel lived in fellowship with him as they went into the land, not in order to get God's promises, not in order to get God's benefit, but because of who God is and what he has done, he expects them to live a certain way. And as a result, it makes practical sense that things are better for them because of it. We could stop there, and, and that's a great lesson, that's a great principle. I already told Jim I'm going over and... Food's in there. We'll get to it. We'll try and, try and keep it reasonable. Chapter 6. Now this commandment, this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then we get to 6 verse 4, the Shema. If you, if you ever encounter a Jew or a, a Jewish individual, if you ever study Old Testament history and the people of Israel, this is, in essence, their Pledge of Allegiance, or their um, constant statement. In fact, the part that we read about talked about bind it on your hands and on your forehead. They actually do that. They'll write out that little phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord he is one. They'll write that out and they'll put it on the, their hand or as frontlets between their eyes. And that's an outward action to remind them, to help them know this principle, this idea the Lord their God, He is one. Now, there's so much contained in that one phrase. I told you we're, we're taking the 30,000 foot view. If, if you have opportunity, I know uh, from the other Bible studies and lessons and stuff that I've been able to be a part of with you guys, you're really good about going into the word studies and digging deep. This is a phrase, this is a section that you can dig really, really deep into and just, it, it opens up like an onion where you peel off layer after layer after layer and you get deeper and deeper and it's so rich and it's so much in this. Listen to this. Be aware. Not just hear it in one ear, out the other, but know this for a certainty. The Lord our God. And that's a, that's a key phrase. That's a key idea. It's not just the, the, the term Lord there is Yahweh. That's the name of God. Yahweh, the specific individual that we're talking about, not, not just a random one or, or whoever you might want. The world around us says, oh, well, every path to God, every, every path leads to God. No, this specific one, he is our God. And it's, it's select, those words are selected because it's not just some deity who's out there that's, you know, doesn't really care about us. No, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, the one that we serve, the one that we follow, 
See, we, we take the name of Christian because it specifies that I am a follower of Christ, not just any religion, anything out there, but a follower specifically of Christ. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And that idea of one, you, you read through the, the rabbis and the, the different things that have been written, there's so much, even just in that one word. He is special and unique, unlike anything else. There's only one of them, and yet we believe in the Trinity, and the way that that works together is fascinating because God is so awesome that he's beyond our comprehension, and yet this God, who is our God, he is the only one, there is no other. These others that try to, to claim uh, existence aren't even worth mentioning. Because of that, we get to verse 5, because of that, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. I've already told you there's so much more in this. We're going we're gonna to pause on that portion. We're going to jump forward to what Christ taught. New Testament, the, the ones who are supposed to know the law, the ones who are supposed to understand all of the, the Old Testament and the truths, they come to him and they say, what is the greatest commandment? And and if you read through that story, you'll probably realize that they were most likely expecting Jesus to give them one of the ten that we just went through. Because, I mean, those are, those are pretty big ones, right? Those are pretty significant. Maybe, maybe Jesus was going to go through the rest of the book of Deuteronomy. There's a lot of laws. Uh, in Judaism, there are like 600 and some laws that, that they identify as individual things that they're supposed to do. So these Pharisees, they come to Jesus. They're like, what is the greatest law? What is the most important law? This is what Jesus points to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's, that's like the emotion, the will, the, the inside. With all your mind, that's the way that we think, our actions and our attitudes. And with all of your might, the things that we do. So it's not just that we say that we love Jesus. I, I hope that everyone here would say that they are a Christian, that they're a follower of Christ. But it's not just what we say. It's what we think. It's who we are on the inside. And it's what we do that determines that, that recognizes that. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus identifies that as the greatest commandment. And the second, Jesus says, is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Now, yeah, I don't have time for a, a whole nother sermon about that idea. We've only, we've only barely scratched the surface on this first one of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second is like unto it. But then Jesus goes on and he says, all of the law and the prophets, the entirety of the Old Testament is summed up in this. So I told you we're, we're going to take a 30,000 foot view. We're bringing the plane in for landing now. We're going to try and, and focus in on this one thing. If you've got nothing else, I hope that you understand this idea. This is what the Old Testament, what Moses in his farewell address is trying to bring out to the children of Israel. This is what Jesus in the New Testament is trying to bring out to the people. The whole of the Old Testament is summed up in this idea. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Love your neighbor as yourself. On this rests all the law, all the prophets, everything else that we get into this. Everything we can find in Scripture is based on that. So as we close, as we sum it up, hear and do, not to earn God's favor, not to earn the promises. The things that, that Moses is reminding them of in his farewell address they're not to get the promises of God. God already promised it. He will fulfill that. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. But when we hear God's word and we put it into action, when we do things as a result of it, it changes our lives. It, it fulfills our relationship with God and it helps us to prosper or to do well in what God expects of us. See, he's given us great promises and we can enjoy them to their fullest when we hear God's word and we obey it. We do what he wants. And it starts with this most basic idea 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. I already said, I don't know everybody's heart here. I don't know where you're at. I assume, I know it's a dangerous thing, but I'm going to guess that most of us claim to be followers of Christ. There's nothing I can do to force you to do certain things. But I want to challenge you. When you hear God's word, and hopefully you hear it frequently, but when you hear God's word, don't let it just go in one ear and out the other. Hear it, listen to it, and obey it so that you can do, take action based on it. I believe that every time we open God's word, that it should change us, it should challenge us. So when you hear God's word, hear it, make it a part of who you are, and do it, take action based on it, so that you can prosper, so that you can live well. You can live the way that God wants you to live. You can enjoy the benefits of fellowship with Christ. Now, obviously, if you don't know Christ, <laughs> it makes no difference. So that's the first part. If you do know Christ, I encourage you, know Him better, know Him closer, review the history that's why I love hearing testimonies. Review the history just like Moses did and then go forward in that relationship fulfilling God's commands so that you can enjoy God's promises. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the promises that you've given us. Lord, we've barely scratched the surface of how awesome you are as Moses reminds the people that you are unique, that you are special, that you love them, that you've cared for them. Lord, you've done the same for us. And Father, I pray that you would help us to understand that, to, to rest in that, to rejoice in that. And Lord, we know that there are, there are some do's and don'ts, but you don't give them to us to be grievous and difficult. You give them to us so that we can live an abundant life with you. So Father, I pray that if there's one here that doesn't know you, that they would take the opportunity to, to talk to someone to find out who you are and, and not to know you for, by the things that they do from works, but to simply trust you because you've said that whosoever would call on you can be saved. Lord, those of us who, who are Christ followers, I pray that you would give us the strength to live out that relationship well. Thank you, Lord, that you are a personal God that we can know face to face, that we can interact with, that we can come before with boldness and with humility, bring our requests to you that you love us and that you care for us. God, you are awesome. You are unlike any other. We, we worship you because of that. Thank you for this time that we've had to, to barely scratch the surface of some of those things. I pray that each one of us would go out challenged and changed so that we would live for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.